Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm traveling around the Baltic Sea using Finline's three passenger routes to do so. I'm taking the opportunity to talk to the region's seafarers. In this case, it's the Finns and Swedes who work on Finline's vessels day in, day out. For weeks on end come rain, snow, sun and storms. And I'm also using the journey to look at the Baltic Sea as an opportunity and a risk. It's the opportunity based around where it is and what's in it. And it's the risk so that it's facing mostly to its health and how the countries surrounding it are working to make it healthier. So it's a journey about livelihoods, politics, pollution and the opportunity and how they all sit together in this strategic region. My name's Craig Eason. I'm a journalist and editor. I'm host of the Aranex podcast and I edit and run the Fathom World News website. And I'm about to join the second of my three vessels, Fin Lady in Helsinki. I arrived in Finland on board Europa Link. It was a nine-hour journey from Stockholm in the port of Kappelshare over to Nantley in the southwest of Finland. And you can hear about that in the first of these three episodes. On this, the second voyage, I'm going to be going from Helsinki's Vuvasari harbour to Travemunde in Germany. It's a journey of about 36 hours. But while in Helsinki, I'm going to be making a stop at the offices of the organisation that is checking on and working to rebuild the health of the Baltic Sea. A sea which is suffering from some very serious man-made problems. This is Helcom, the Helsinki Commission. Its offices are on the waterfront in Helsinki city centre. The nine countries that border the Baltic are its signatories and therefore its members. So that's Denmark, Germany, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Finland and of course Russia. The European Union makes up the 10th contracting party. Its work has been ongoing for decades, but in recent months it's been encapsulated into the Baltic Sea Action Plan. So, what's happening now to make the sea infamous for its poisonous blue-green algae in the summer, for its eutrophication, for its huge volume of shipping all year round, and a growing economic activity from all its member states? So what's happening to make the sea better? Rutger Strempel is Helcom's executive secretary, so I popped into the Helcom offices to see him before I headed off to Vuasar Report to join Finlady. And I started by asking him to explain what the Baltic Sea Action Plan is and how it is going to make a difference. The Baltic Sea Action Plan contains four specific thematic segments. So one of these thematic segments is dedicated to eutrophication, specifically to eutrophication. The Baltic Sea Action Plan, as you mentioned, contains roughly 200 actions. It's actually 199, and I never actually remember and know why we didn't make it to 200, but okay, it's 199, such is life. 36 of those are devoted to combating eutrophication, and so we have to look at the various sources of, of eutrophication in that segment. We're looking at agriculture. We have a nutrient recycling strategy, um, which is supposed to be implemented by 2027. So this is an important element of, of combating um, uh, eutrophication. So all of this is contained in the Baltic Sea Action Plan and has been a part of our work for decades, of course, not just since the inception of the Baltic Sea Action Plan. So. As Trample said, the countries that surround the Baltic Sea are making efforts to reduce the amount of pollution or 
over-nutrification that goes into the Baltic Sea. But the problem is unfortunately what's already in there. And here, there's a very unfortunate similarity to climate change. To, to jokingly say, if I drop a cork in the Baltic Sea outside my office here, which is right by the Baltic Sea, it'll still be here in, in the 2050s. Um, because it takes roughly 30 years for a full water exchange. And this is, of course, a problem that we have to contend with. And there is an ecosystem lag. So much as in the case of, of climate change, for instance, if we stopped emitting CO2 right now, we couldn't stop climate change because it's already on track. It's already taking place. We have a similar situation here. We have this ecosystem lag, and it's partially due to um, the, the legacy of nutrients in the sediment. Um, now, clearly, that is more difficult to cope with than actually stopping the input of nutrients now. Mm. I referred to uh, riverine input. That is not the only source, of course. We also have other inputs, and shipping, for instance, also contributes to it because um, shipping exhaust, which contains NOx, uh, nitrogen oxides, contributes to the eutrophication of the Baltic Sea. And we also have, uh, for instance, um, gray water from ships and um, also um, food waste, which is disposed from ships into the Baltic Sea, which also contributes to eutrophication. So if you look actually at the Baltic Sea Action Plan, we have the specific segment on eutrophication, which addresses these various um, elements. But you can have to also look beyond that. For instance, if you look at the, um, the sea-based activities segment, you have elements in there which deal with reduction of NOx. We also have elements in there which deal with the uh, reduction of grey water and um, food waste inputs and so on. So the entire Baltic Sea Action plan in some way is related to this and we have to basically address the sources of nutrient inputs now that is our primary Strempel also told me about another major issue with the Baltic Sea that's in the Baltic Sea Action Plan. The thousands possibly hundreds of thousands of unexploded mines bombs other ordnance that's been dumped or left in the waters of the Baltic Sea from the Second World War and even later. 40,000 tonnes of chemical munitions, chemical munitions alone, were dumped in the Baltic Sea at designated dumping sites, but also en route, which makes it more dramatic because while we may know where the dumping sites are, we don't know what was dropped where in, in between the dumping sites. So that's chemical munitions. We assume that there are about 300,000 tonnes of, um, of conventional munitions in German waters alone, and it's not just German waters, of course. Plus, in addition to dump munitions, there's also um, ordnance that was left behind, if you like, that was deployed and is still there. So we assume that some 35,000 mines can be found in the Gulf of Finland. Now, all of this has been out there for many decades, and of course, uh, as you can imagine, as time uh, progresses, um, it corrodes. So there's a risk of the, the contaminants in um, this ordnance seeping into the marine environment. Munitions have also been hauled up by fishermen in their nets, so unexploded ordnance in a fisherman's net is no joke. It's, uh, it's a major threat. Now you recall that I mentioned the member states that are in HELCOM. You remember that list? And it includes Russia. Now, in nearly all political circles, Russia has been cast out because of its invasion of Ukraine. So how has this impacted what Helcom is doing? And importantly, will it have any impact on the work to clean up the Baltic? If you're looking to protect an international body of water, you need to do so with all the countries bordering on that body of water on board. Otherwise, it's going to be insufficient and inadequate. And this is something that the contracting parties to Helcom acknowledged in 1974 when they reached across the ideological divide at the time to, to join efforts and something they acknowledge again in 1992. And it's something they still acknowledge. So first of all, the message I'd like to convey is that Helcom has not ground to a halt. Helcom is still working. And in that context, um, it should be noted that Russia continues to be a contracting party 
Tehalcom. It has neither withdrawn nor has it been suspended or expelled by any means. So Russia is still a contracting party. Now, having said all this, of course, at the moment, this, this, um, the geopolitical background makes cooperation a bit more difficult than we would like it to be. But cooperation is still ongoing within, within Helcom. So Helcom is delivering its deliverables in line with its timetables, with its timelines. Cooperation um, has been subjected by the uh, contracting parties other than Russia to something that is referred to as a strategic pause. This should not be misinterpreted to mean that Helcom has ceased to operate. What it means is that all official meetings of Helcom bodies have been postponed. This does not preclude, however, having uh, informal meetings and informal gatherings. And when it comes to decision-making and approvals and so on, at the political level, this is being done by means of a written procedure. So Helcom continues to operate. Helcom continues to be on track. But of course, at the moment, it's more difficult than we would wish it to be. Well, my time was soon up at Helcom, so grabbing my bags, I head off to the port of Uasari, which is Helsinki's major port. It's to the east of the city, and it's home to Finline's headquarters. And it's from there that three of Finline's Ropax vessels head south to the continent. Finline's doesn't really compete head-to-head with any other ferry or freight operator on this route, unlike elsewhere. So it's built up the route to attract European cargoes and also create a comfortable link between Finland and Germany for passengers, such as families with cars visiting Finland or Germany for a vacation. So at Vuasari, we're shuttled onto the Finlady car deck, and after getting my cabin key at reception, I head to the bridge to say hello to the captain and the deck crew, and watch the vessel leave Helsinki, slicing through the very thin sea ice, the result of a warmer winter than usual. And the next morning, a grey, cloudy, cold winter Baltic day, I'm able to talk to the crew about their experiences and what makes them tick. What makes a young person go to sea today? And what do they think about the future and the technology? Well, I managed to get to Huasari uh, Harbour in Helsinki and get on board Finlady. And we're now on our way down to Travemunde. And I've uh, come onto the bridge and I've met Jalmari. Jalmari Pirninen. He's the second officer of Finlady. Um, Tell me a little bit about yourself and how you see the job that you're doing here and what's it like being at sea in today's environment? Yeah, well, I started my school on 2014, so I haven't really seen the well, the first ships I went to be an apprentice on. I saw the paper charts, the updating of paper charts and all that stuff, but these newer ships, we don't have the paper charts anymore, only to the emergency harbors. We have them and we have to do some updates course the those charts. Do you do you, do you find when you when you're doing the navigation and you're using the ECDIS? I mean it's my way of looking at a radar and looking at an ECDIS being sort of slightly old fashioned and not you doing things today. It tended I am not sure I could look at an ECDIS today and actually navigate with it. I mean have you got a sort of electronic mindset now? Yeah of course of course I am one of the youngest and the younger generation on the ship, and I have, uh, I have like ex- experience from computers in the shoreside and all that stuff. I have lived with computers all my life, pretty much. Well, not not the like first five years or so. But what, so what, what made you want to actually go to sea? Because it's 
it's often said that a younger generation, they look at a career away from home and it's not attractive. They look at the opportunities in the gaming industry, in, you know, in digital companies, the ability to have a social life and work from, work from home or work in an office and meet all your friends on a Friday night. Whereas going to sea doesn't offer all of that. So what makes a shipping career, what makes being at sea attractive for you? When I applied to schools, I actually got into a university to do some data, I, I don't know what it's called in English, but data like managing uh, and management. And then I also applied to, to the sea captain school, how we call it in Finland. And then the sea captain school, it, it just sounded much more fascinating than the data school <laughs> in university and I was and I swear in the, in the podcast <laughs> I was I was thinking that it sounds much more interesting that I'm I'm kind of person that I cannot stay in one place or one computer for a long time but this sea environment it sounds much more interesting that that kind of office job what do you see in the shipping industry today? I cover a lot of things from a journalistic perspective. I'm talking to people about the sustainability of the industry, about the use of new fuels, whether it's ammonia or methanol or LNG. I'm talking yeah. about the levels of autonomous systems coming into ships, and yeah. I'm talking about a higher level of um, kind of oversight and the huge amount of regulations. That are, that are coming in. As a seafarer, do you see all of this as well, or are you sort of totally engrossed in, your, in this one ship and its one route? Do you get a larger picture of the whole industry? Well, in our routine work, of course, we don't really see the future or development other than the regulations are getting stricter and stricter. But personally, for me, I'm fascinated by the technology and the develop, development of, of all the fuels and stuff and I'm interested in those. Some people, of course, older people might see them as, uh, how do you call it, like it's not good for the industry and stuff, but I like it. I like it that things are going forward, technology is getting developed all the time and I, I like it. I, I wouldn't like it that it's all the same for the next 40 years. There must be something new every every time. That's every interesting year. because a lot of people and I guess this is an age thing as well yeah. older people don't like perhaps they're not as ready to accept change whereas mm -hmm. being young and you've got a full career ahead of you, mm -hmm. you know 40 years career ahead of you here in the industry you want to see change do you feel that you've got an opportunity to be real part of that well i i don't really see myself as developing or having the knowledge of, of the development but of course i can and i have to give my my like view of the people who are actually working on the sea because most of the changes are coming from shoreside and laws, regulations and all that stuff and they they don't always take in account the people that who are actually working. 
Good. Well, Yalmarie, good luck. Yeah. Thank you, thank you very much for letting me come and have a chat with you. I'm off to have a chat with your captain now. Well, I've now met up with uh, Captain Pekka Stenvik, who is master of Finn Lady. Thank you for letting me come and have a chat with you up on the bridge here. I've just been talking to your second mate yes. um, about his expectations being a young um, officer with his career ahead of him. And one of the things I wanted to have a chat with you about is First of all, a little bit about Thin Lady, but let's also talk about how you see this industry today. You've got a, a lengthy career. Yeah, um, 85 I started on that ship over there, which is the Rosella, and uh, since then I've been at sea all the time. Just to, uh, just to explain, just behind us, we've just gone past Rosella, the Viking Line vessel, which I believe is an, on its way out of the Baltic now. Yes. It's been sold. The, yeah, it's sold into the Mediterranean now. So you've had a long career. Has most of it been here in the Baltic? Would you call yourself, you know, a Baltic Sea captain? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been in the Baltic Sea most of, of the time, but uh, I've seen the Mediterranean, North Atlantic, and uh, been around a little bit here and there. What's the attraction yeah. of the Baltic Sea? Well, I know the Baltic Sea. I know the regulations, how it goes here, and uh, I know all the ships. And, uh, well, this is my area. The route that we're running between Helsinki down to Travemunde, we go sort of slightly westish and then south. We go past Gotland, near Bornholm, and then down in towards, in towards Germany. Is, it, is there any sort of, what are the exciting parts of that route? Well, this route, of course, we have quite exciting. Uh, we have uh, plenty of warships nowadays. And uh, then we got the explosion of the gas pipeline. It's uh, quite close to this place where we are now, close to Bornholm. And uh, then, of course, uh, all the views and everything. And nowadays we have uh, small dolphins outside Rostock on this route. You mentioned the, the explosion uh, yeah. in the gas pipeline. Yeah. Did you see anything? Uh, well, we didn't see the explosion. We weren't close to it. Uh, but uh, the days afterwards, as it was bubbling out the gas from the pipeline, we saw the bubbling was about six to eight meters high. The, the bubbles. The were... bubbles, yeah, okay. because they had some uh, uh, guard vessels around it, and so we could see the height of the bubbles. Oh, wow. So yeah, you could see it really. Yeah. <laughs> Let's look back at the uh, sort of how you see this ship and the new ships that are going to be coming in. How do you see all the technology changes? I was just talking to your second mate about his sort of love of change, really, how he's excited about, you know, the 40 years that he may have in his career in the industry. How do you see all of this change? He was a bit kind of cautious about saying it, but I got the impression that he thinks that sort of the older generations are a little bit more cautious about change. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> if we now compare this Viking Line ship, the Rosella, uh, and uh, there we had a uh, hand rudder all the time, 24-7. And uh, nowadays it's automatic all the way. And uh, for example, our electronic seat charts, nowadays we don't have the paper charts here on board anymore. And uh, I'm looking forward. Uh, we should get our new ships uh, in the near future sometimes. And I'm really expecting and looking forward to it, to, to see what they develop. And, and, and um, of course, now I have been on this uh, type of ship 10 years already. So it's, I have seen this. 
So I'm expecting to get something new again. I was talking to you earlier on, and you mentioned something that I thought was quite interesting, because I, I write a lot, and the people who are, who are sure, who listen to the podcast and read Fathom World, they're interested in fuel-saving technologies and efficiencies. And we quite often hear about companies that change propellers or change bulbous bows or use some other technologies. And I was, in, I was intrigued when you said that this vessel had smaller propellers put on yes. um, a while ago. Tell me yes. a little bit more about the sort of savings you see on one leg. Yeah. Okay, our top speed is now a little bit less than before, but our fuel efficiency is much better than, than before because uh, the smaller propellers, they don't use so much energy. And uh, we save, uh, on one leg, we save 30 tons of fuel, heavy fuel oil. So that's a really good, big cost. So that's and almost 30 tons a day because it is a sort of day, yeah, like yeah. day and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oil. It's just over a day. So it's yeah. almost, a, yeah, 25, yeah. something like that, tons per day. So it's a smaller propeller. And I believe it's not just a propeller. You've got a, is it called a boss cap? to go to link the propeller to the rudder. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So uh, there is a vortex uh, behind the propeller and uh, then of course uh, we use heavy fuel oil which is not allowed in the Baltic without scrubbers. So yeah. that's uh, our exhaust gas uh, cleaning. Uh, does, it, does it work well, the yes. scrubber? Yeah. But I gather, it, I've heard that quite often scrubbers need a lot of maintenance. Yeah, they do. Uh, but uh, we also have uh, uh, all the samples taken and they go on a hard drive, and our officials, uh, they also control this, so they have to be working okay. perfectly. So you're, you're sort of the, um, the sulfur content is monitored in the exhaust, and uh, that data is, yes. is there. The, so the sulfur is taken yeah. away from the exhaust gas. Yeah. And so how often do you get inspected on this ship and things like that, environmental performance and other things? Oh, uh, from Germany they inspect us twice a year, and from Finland all the time. We also have an inspection now in the afternoon. So, when it when it comes to your sort of when you see youngsters uh, coming into the industry and the ability to attract people into the industry, um, Finlines has got Finnish officers, Finnish crew, Finnish officers, or Swedish. Um, in some, in, some, in some of the routes, but largely kind of North European crews and officers. Is, do you find that it's getting more and more difficult? Have you heard or seen that it's getting more difficult to attract people to go to college and become uh, seafarers? Uh, no. Uh, we have, yeah, sometimes we have smaller problems. Uh, COVID was a problem time. And after COVID, uh, then we had a small problem. But otherwise, uh, we have plenty, we have, uh, first of all, we have one-to-one -one, uh, working schedule, so that means three weeks working and three weeks at home. And when I'm at home, I don't have to worry about the ship at all. And our salaries, they are very good compared to the ones ashore. Mm. For example, if you are a waiter or a bartender or whatever, the salaries are, are very comparing to... By comparison. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, mm. So, comparison to the ones ashore. Yeah. Uh, so, we have for those three weeks, you can really switch off. Yeah. Do and whatever your hobbies are. Yeah, for example, yeah. I was just making a trip to, to the Canary Islands now and I didn't have to worry about the ship at all. And uh, uh, our work here on board, yeah, our 
from three weeks from yeah. yeah from the cabin to the workplace that takes two minutes to walk, <laughs> and we have ready food on uh, on the table, and uh, you don't have to worry about anything except your work. And afterwards, uh, on this ship, we have uh, sauna and everything, and we have a good environment uh, inside our crew. And to talk about Finlines, uh, we are a part of the Grimaldi Group, and we have uh, we are preparing and uh, developing new ships coming out all the time. So the development that I can see inside this company is very good. And uh, if I'm asked, I don't want to leave this company at all. Uh, so in nine years, I will be retired and I hope I can stay here as long as it takes. Thank you very much, Captain. Thank, Thank you for you. your time. Yeah. No problem. I'll come off of the bridge and I'm now down in the restaurant area. And with me is uh, Dan Grunwald. Dan, you are responsible for the food concepts that are going to be going into the new building vessels yes. when they come, aren't you? Yes, you're going to, so you're looking at what you can deliver in foods. Now, it's worth bearing in mind that this is not uh, these new vessels and these vessels are not just passenger vessels; they're Ropax yeah. vessels. But from what I understand, there's more of a focus on passengers yeah. in the new vessels. Yeah. So it's like increasing the focus on passengers. Yes. Isn't it? Yeah, the passengers at the moment on these old ships are 500, 500, and on new ships is 1,100 passengers. But about two, 200 are drivers, truck drivers. But yes, the new segment for Finland is passengers. We have many new restaurants. They are coming a la carte and buffet, of course, grill, where you can get some burgers and steaks, and a very nice spa area. With in, in, in terms of that balance between families going on holiday or people who want a sort of a day cruise experience and the, the logistics freight drivers, when you're doing the food concepts, there must be a sort of balance that you're going to have to strike because the freight drivers don't always want to come on board and have that sort of luxury experience. They're, they're, they're working, they come on board, they have their meals. What do you do in terms of finding that balance between the sort of enticement of passengers so families can come on board and, you know, that sort of day-in, day-out kind of trade? Yeah, the, pass- uh, the drivers on Finlines, so they know these ships. They know they know us. So on the Nantali Kapelsar route, route. Yeah, yeah, they're they know they just come on board, eat, sleep, and then they eat again and leave the ship because it's so short. It takes the nine hours. Yeah. So yeah. it's yeah. You are here now. You've got to a position where I think you said you're even going to be going out to China to see the vessels and yeah. uh, to bring them back yes. over to uh, Northern Europe. Yeah later this year but what what's your career been like how long have you been working on ships in this role or okay. other roles i started on ships in 95 okay it was one year after estonia i remember it well i was in the dishwashing hmm. on ship and there was the silent moment one 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 minute silent moment to estonia it was my first day on the ships at all but then 2006 i came to see finlines when Finstar was new in Italy, I was there to bring the ship to Travemünde. And now I've been here yeah, from 2006 to last September. I was working on this route from Helsinki to Travemünde. And then, oh, okay, this new project, on new building project, I've been 
doing two years when I work on the ships, help Christina Uppela and Reyes Aarinen planning the food concept. But last September I got off ship and started to work in the office and plan more intensively. With the so it sounds like it's quite a lot. It's not most people don't often th- they don't think about how the food has been prepared, not prepared but planned. So the whole concepts behind the food and the experience that you see yeah. on board a vessel. Uh, a lot of people put it's just with they go. They, often I'll go on board a ship and I will see the buffet mm. and I'll eat the buffet and I'll say that's good or that's bad and yeah. you know or whatever. Mm. I don't think about how much time and planning has gone into preparing what that ship's going to have on board. Yeah, it seems like you're, you've spent two years looking at how you're going to bring concepts onto a new building. Yeah, so. What's gone on in those two years? What sort of, what is the process? And tell me a little bit about where you're getting the food from. I, you know, how sustainable are you thinking? Yeah, we have been yeah, two years have been working, and we started to work at we put our own ideas on paper, and then we started to think what restaurants we have, what food we will sell there, at what what kind of food we will sell there. So we have been working on that, and all the cutleries. Glasses, plates—it's—it's it's been a crazy year now because we did just a big list of every glass, cutlery, uh, plates, every everything you needed in the kitchen, everything you need in a bar. So it was 100 pages of products, which my boss in China will go to a factory in China. We need this. How much does this cost? Oh, and what about the food itself? Where are you going to be? Sourcing the food from will it be? It's it's going to be a new how you say it in English. Uh, deliver food delivers food. It's going to be a new contract. It's going to be Kespro, which is very big in Finland, Kesko concern. So they're going to bring the food to us, and it's going to be we are striving to get local food. Okay, so it's, it's important, and archipelago there. So we are hmm. going to use. So no less imported. Food, seasonal food, perhaps yeah, yeah, yeah. seasonal, yeah. local, the kind of food that one would find regional growing in Finland Yo. or Germany or Sweden or yeah, and Orland or Orland, yeah, 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 okay. yeah. Great, lovely, Dan. Thanks a lot for the time. I do appreciate okay. it. Good luck with it. Thank all. you. Thank and uh, enjoy the journey home from China on the ship. Yeah, it's going to be interesting summer coming. In June, we are going to fly to very high, and then maybe two weeks at the dockside, and then uh, July 1st, they may be going to give the ship to Finland, and then we can start to... Put, sail home. Yeah, 40 days. 40 days to 40 sail days. home. That'll be the longest voyage you've done in one go, won't it? Yeah, yeah, never been. Well, it's time to get ready to leave Finlady. The vessel enters Travamunda, and while I've been aboard the vessel, courtesy of Finlines, I've also had the chance to meet up with the intelligence hunt team that's been brought together by Sea Focus International. IH and Sea Focus International are building up the bridge between businesses seeking a way to look at new problems with new eyes and the students and young people seeking the opportunity to show their ideas and working in an industry that's rapidly evolving. So if you want to see what's happening, I urge you to go to Sea Focus International's website. In your browser, just type in seafocus.international and you'll see what those opportunities are. But now, as I said, as we travel through to Travel Monday Roads to Finline's Terminal, I pack my bags and get ready to go straight over to my third trip on this tour, the wonderfully sounding Finfellow, 
which I did notice was just sailing a couple of hours behind Fin Lady into Travamunda. So that's it for me for the second of the three episodes. The third episodes will be me travelling from Travamunda to Malma in Fin Fellow, and an episode where I look at spatial plans for the future use of the Baltic Sea. Can we work to make the Baltic Sea cleaner as Helcom wants and make it sustainable for future use? You can find out more about these voyages and the Baltic, about the shipping industry, its environmental changes and the ways the ocean and shipping industries are evolving, hopefully sustainably, by visiting fathom.world. That's the website dedicated to the transformation that we're all facing. So until the next time, bon voyage.